Hey all, Christian here. Uh, for today's bonus content, you're going to hear my co-creator Zach's interview with Liz Karen, whose novel The Phantom Forest was published by Inkshares and is available now wherever you get books. Uh, I was not there for this conversation, which is probably for the best, as I would have had to fight both of them about Star Wars. Uh, Last Jedi is the best of the new Star Wars, and it's not even close. Um, but that travesty aside, uh, it is a really interesting interview. It touches on writing for different media, audience and genre expectations, and the afterlife. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. One heads up, we did have a bit of a tech snafu on Zach's end. His audio is still very much listenable, intelligible. Um, it's just rougher than we'd like, so sorry about that. Uh, luckily, um, Liz's audio sounds fantastic. Um, okay, I will be back once more in the middle of the episode, but that will probably be the last time I talk to you in 2019, so I want to wish all of you a wonderful holiday season and a happy new year. We're going to be hard at work on Chapter 7 in 2020, and we will let you know how that's coming along as soon as we have something to announce. But for now, enjoy Zach's interview with author Liz Carrot. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined for an interview with Liz Karen, the author of the new book, The Phantom Forest. Liz, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're so happy to have you here. Your book, The Phantom Forest, it's a story about the afterlife and a hero finding their, their hero's journey. Um, why don't you tell us about it yourself a little bit? Yeah, okay. Uh, so The Phantom Forest is a uh, YA dystopian fantasy that takes place in this post-apocalyptic world that's inhabited by mystical spirits where a young woman is offered up in a human sacrifice ritual and vows revenge on her killer from beyond the grave. Yeah, and I, I read it. It's a lot of fun. It's a really interesting Thank take you. on what what the afterlife is and how that whole uh, how that all turns out after you die, I guess. <laughs> and you published it through Inkshares, who's a, a publishing company that does almost crowdsource publishing, who we've done interviews with Inkshares uh, authors before. Oh, okay, awesome. So why don't you tell us about how how the book sort of came together and how you wound up with Inkshares? Yeah, gosh. So ending up at Inkshares was kind of the the final stage of a very, very long journey I went on with this book. Um in that I started writing it about seven, eight years ago now, and um, you know had initially kind of taken it out on submission through traditional publishing means. Um, you know, did the whole agency thing. It didn't get set up anywhere, um, and I'm also a screenwriter. Um, so, kind of after after that, kind of did a backdoor approach, being like, can you set it up? as a film and TV property and then, you know, kind of try to snag a book deal for it. And just it, for one reason or another, it, it didn't fully pan out after a couple years of this. So, you know, I, I put it in a drawer. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it. And it was kind of a bummer because I, I really truly love the characters and the world and it really meant something to me. And, um, then about a year or two later, I heard about this, manuscript search competition thing um, through the tracking board 
which is this, you know, really great networking resource that we have out here in Hollywood. And um, they were looking for unpublished manuscripts that would make really awesome film and TV properties. So I submitted to that and I made the shortlist and Inkshares was the um, sponsoring publisher. So that's how I got involved with them. And then at the end of that whole process, I had enough interest and enough pre-orders that they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll put this book out. So then, you know, after that, it kind of became very much like what my experience would have been doing, you know, publishing at a traditional larger publisher, wherein, you know, wait, waiting in the pipeline for my editor, then working with my editor for a very long period of time and changing everything I thought I knew about the story, adding stuff at the 11th hour, changing characters' names at the 11th hour, <laughs> all this stuff that I like, you know, because I walked in with this book being like, oh, I, I wrote this seven years ago. It's like done. Like I know everything there is to know about this world. It's, it's done. And then, you know, the minute you start working with really smart people, they just shine light on different facets of it that you never really thought of before. Uh, so that took a while and then it just came out in uh, July. So, you know, it's, that was the end of a, a long road, a long, very twisted road that I couldn't really see the end of for a long time. <laughs> that, that's so interesting how, how the paths kind of twist and turn. Mm -hmm. And actually, um, some of our longer listeners would know our podcast script started out as a TV show script as well. Oh, cool. Okay. And um, part, of, part of why uh, I like Ink Shares and what they do is because it's a lot of the spirit of what we did when we made the podcast. It was sort of a similar idea where we were trying to make a TV script and that wasn't happening. So we just sort of went and did it on our own because we could do that because podcasting kind of has low barriers and ink shares. They seem to, I mean, it's not zero barriers, obviously, but it seems like they're, they make it a lot easier for people who haven't been able to get through the sort of the traditional channels to go and get their voice out there, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that, uh, you know, when I first wrote this book, there was a lot that I didn't know about kind of the do's and don'ts of publishing and what kinds of very commercial, almost arbitrary, but very strict rules there are about, you know, we can, we'll talk about this later about the boundaries of, of genre and what classifies as YA, what is not YA, and all of these things. And my book was a lot of different things rolled into one. And I think that Inkshare saw that as more of an opportunity than a liability, which was why it made a lot of sense to uh, publish with them. That's really cool. So when you said you started it seven years ago, was it a script form at that time? For a half a second it was, um, <laughs> you know, because I, I went to film school, I went to NYU, I uh, moved out here to LA around that time to just you know, get deeper into my career, try to get a, you know, get a job in a writer's room, find an agent, etc. And I was a screenwriter. So I had this crazy, big, world building, massive, epic idea. <laughs> and, you know, start writing it as a screenplay. And, you know, you get halfway through and I'm like, oh, nobody's going to make this. Nobody's going to buy this. This is this is insanity. I know that. So kind of put that to the side and then realized, oh, but you know what? It, it'd be an awesome book. 
And I had written one book before this that was not published that I didn't even try to publish. It was something that was kind of just for me. But I had cut my teeth on that. So I, I more or less knew what to do. So I just kind of cranked out a book. I was working as an assistant for a literary manager. And during my weekends and my lunch breaks and stuff like that, I would just try to get 500 words out here and there. And over the course of those couple of years, drafted the book and then just kept chipping away at it and rewriting it for all that time. But I think the reason a lot of people have told me, oh, you know, this feels like a movie. There are so many things that are cinematic and super visual about it. And I'm like, well, that's because it sort of started there. So that makes sense. Yeah, and it really is. It's such a visual story, especially like there's just like certain scenes from your book that always pop out in my head when they're in the underworld, the, the two characters are going on their trek through the underworld and they see this big mountain looming up in front of them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely a world that was really fun to create and inhabit. And, you know, I, I, I think what, what is interesting was while writing it and while editing it, there were other parts of this world that don't get explored in this story, but could have been, maybe should have been, you know, and it's a big, it's a big world. So I hope that there's opportunity in the future to explore other corners of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big world building nerd. So yeah. if you don't mind nerding out for a second, how did you uh, start that process? Like what, what made you think of this whole world and the, the whole underworld system, I guess? Yeah. Okay. So I'll go, I'll, I'll take you like way back. Oh, perfect. When I was, when I was in middle school, we did this whole, you know, unit on Greek mythology and ancient Rome and stuff like that. And then we also did a lot of research on the ancient Mayans and their concept of human sacrifice and blood rituals. And I was, you know, maybe 12 or 13 and I had a very, you know, some very dark sensibilities. (laughs) And I thought that was just the creepiest, coolest thing I'd ever heard. And so I wrote this short story kind of inspired by what we were learning in class about, you know, a girl who gets sacrificed to a wicked deity, like, by her community. And, you know, obviously I was 13. I didn't do anything with it, but it was just fun for me. And, um, you know, years and years later, I was just reminded of it. And I'm like, you know, I don't know. There's something weird there. Maybe that's like a YA novel, you know? (laughs) And then the way I built out this world was acknowledging that you know, throughout history, every culture has had its idea of what the afterlife consists of. And there's just been so much mythology and ancient text written about it that we as modern day people have a really good working understanding of what some of these constructs are. So I was like, how do we take something that's familiar and give it an original twist. So there are things in here that might remind people of touchstones from Greek or Roman or Egyptian mythology, things like the river Styx or something like that, concepts about reincarnation, etc. But you know, then you have to decide, well, what, what do I think about that? What, what is my personal philosophy and how can I turn that into something that speaks to what I believe. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I think as an aside that middle school you and middle school me would have been best friends. And <laughs> probably a lot of our podcast listeners too could really relate to that. But so to follow that up, 
how do you think you feel about that? So in the story, there's a lot of discussion about are you predestined to be good or evil, or is it something you can change? So, and you just said you have to think about how you feel about that personally. So I guess, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that how I feel about it personally is sort of built into the DNA of the rules of this world in which, I mean, I, I don't want to like spoil too much about what happens, but, you know, redemption is a really big theme in this story. And I believe that redemption is possible, but also there's a spectrum not everything is so black and white, which is what our main character, Seisha, believes at first. She believes souls are born into this world, either good or evil, and that's it. They stay that way, and there's good souls and bad souls. But I certainly don't believe that's true. I don't believe you're born good or bad. You always have a choice. And um, that is something that she learns throughout the course of her journey in this world is that there is some gray area with that stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting message, and I think it's a, a good message to share with the world, especially sometimes nowadays, as it feels like the world tends to get more polarized. Sometimes it's nice yeah. to remember that, you know, there is, there is a middle ground between pure good and pure evil sometimes. Absolutely. I, I feel like, you know, I came up with this story, like I said, quite some time ago, but... I feel like that theme is pretty powerful right now. And I, I think that's something also that's really great about writing YA is that you have an amazing opportunity to expand someone's perspective on the world. A young person, you have a chance to get them to think about something in a new and interesting way. You know, and so if they're following Seisha's emotional journey here, it's, it's learning that lesson alongside of her, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, how did you decide to make it a YA book? And you mentioned a little bit about the, the rules of YA earlier. How did that sort of come into play as you were writing this book? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So, I mean, I set out to write a YA book but it quickly became a lot of other things. And I thought that that was super interesting and I didn't want to fight against those other things. So I just kind of, you know, like I said, I'm almost glad that I didn't know what all the hard and fast rules of YA were when I was conceptualizing this because I think it would have been a really different book. So for example, you know, I, I had a, an agent I submitted to really early on who said she would not look at YA manuscripts that were over 100,000 words. It was just no go for her. Oh, interesting. And she said, yeah, and she was like, anybody you submit to is going to tell you this. So I'm like, okay. So I shaved off, you know, however many thousand words it was. Um, and kept chipping away at it from there. So I think in the end it was like 97,000 words, which looking back, I'm like, oh, I could have done like at least another 50, 60 pages of this. Like I really wanted to, um, but that was, you know, again, a, a rule that someone told me many years ago for YA and I'm like, okay, that's fine. Then there's kind of this idea that your lead characters can't be over the age of like 17 or 18. And that was a kind of strange thing to grapple with, too. I think that I wanted Seisha's problems in life to not be teenager problems. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, she's she's kind of like a mother to her younger brother and she's just trying to survive. And then when she goes to the underworld, she's just trying to get justice. And 
these are not teenager problems. These are people problems. These, you know, and some of the things she goes through are very adult. So she's 19 in this story and uh, 18 or 19. She's like, she's about to turn 19, I think is what she says. I should know this, but, you know. (laughs) Who knows anymore? Um, but she she is on that cusp of that of that age cutoff, and I you know had some pushback on that too. And then of course with YA, you have to be really careful with the violence and references to sex mm-hmm. and anything that anything that might make people feel a little uneasy. Um, and then of course you get asked, why isn't there a love triangle? For the love of God, where's my love triangle? <laughs> and also like. And in this story, you get, a, you know, the question of why isn't the love story front and center? And I'm like, well, because the love story emerges because of another greater story. It's not front and center. It's not like today I met a guy and I fell in love and the whole trajectory of this narrative is about whether or not we're going to be together. Yeah. That's a very traditional YA narrative format. And this is a quest story. And then along the way you also might fall in love, you know? So it's, it's all, of, all of those things. There's just a lot of traditional boundaries and, um, and mine, mine kind of bumped up against some of those things. Uh, I see now kind of this subgenre called new adult starting to emerge. And I think that's super interesting. And I would love to see traditional bigger publishers dig deeper with that because there's room for older characters, more mature themes, stuff like that. So I don't know. That's cool to me. And I hope that more, I hope that publishers liking shares, um, you know, smaller publishers that are putting out books like mine kind of pave the way for stuff like that. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book is that some books seem like they almost sort of are shouting on every page, hey, look, I'm YA, look, I'm YA. <laughs> and uh, sometimes that can get a little grating. And I found that your book didn't do that at all. And I think a lot of that has to do with those things that you just said. A lot of the story elements are just sort of the characters naturally like progressing and evolving in a way that mm-hmm. felt really like it, it fit very well. It's very natural. Thank you. Uh, I was just thinking about this recently because I actually recently reread. Have you read the Garth Nix Sabriel books? No, I haven't. Tell me. Oh, they were one of my favorite books when I was okay. a kid. One of the first fantasy stories that I really got obsessed with their okay. world, and and I just recently reread them for the first time in you know ten or fifteen years, and they're still so so incredible to read. And part of that is the world building is so deep, but part of it is that it's not, I guess, almost condescending about the young adultness. And I guess it's like you said, the character is a young adult at the time, but that's not the driving point of the story. So that's really interesting to hear how you sort of uh, develop that theory as well, I guess. Yeah, um, it's interesting you say that. My favorite book as a actual young adult uh, was The Giver by Lois Lowry. And Mm, that's another awesome example of something that really holds up because the main character is 12 years old, but he is dealing with some like earth-shattering, world-rocking realities that are just, it really holds up and it's just creepy, dystopian, off-kilter world-building. And it's, yeah, it's not aggressively YA. There's no love triangle. He has a crush on some girl. It doesn't work out. And it's like, fine, because the whole, like, his world hangs in the balance. So, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, not, not to like, not to like totally trash YA, obviously. I, I obviously am a part of it, but like <laughs> there is, I, the, it'd be interesting to research just at what point did YA pivot 
into this really specific, you know, that it became a genre and not so much an audience. You know, it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was no longer a demographic. It's a genre now. And I think that's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I wonder if it ties into the way that the fantasy genre has in some ways started to become a little stereotypical mm-hmm. until recently when people have started to break it a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. Like, there's, there's a lot. like, it feels like the stereotypical fantasy YA story, eight times out of ten, you don't need to say anything more. You kind of can picture the entire story from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I'm writing another YA right now that's a standalone, and I'm, you know, trying to do something similar. I'm, I'm trying to say, like, okay, this is what this is what I think YA is, but let me introduce some some adult concepts and themes seen through the eyes of someone young, and I and mm. I think that that is really really powerful. And you know, a lot of us growing up, you know, we had we were dealing with things that we weren't we weren't telling all our friends there are some very you know hard things that young people go through that are are these private moments of growth and i think that if you speak to that in a young reader that that's where it becomes kind of kind of timeless and you connect with your audience on a deeper level at least i hope so yeah i think that that makes a lot of sense i was addicted to ya fantasy when i was that age and a lot of the stories are still very important to me now as an adult, but it's it's really interesting to know which stories can really transcend time like that. And I think you might be onto something that it's not almost condescending down to children, but you know, putting the children in these real world situations can be what what really ties that mm-hmm. together. I think you have to when you're writing for a younger audience. You look at something even like The Lion King that you know when when that first came out in what 1994, all the parents were like. Oh my God, Mufasa dies. What are we doing to our children? Can they even handle this dead lion? What are we? What is this? And we all saw it, and we were like, "This is this is the greatest movie of all time. We can we can handle yeah. the, the dying lion." So you know, just remember that's we 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 can handle the dying lions. That's, that's <laughs> very true. We can handle the dying lions. Hey all. Before we continue this conversation, I want to tell you about a new podcast I'm really excited about. It's called Marvels, based on the graphic novel by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross, and it's an incredible window into the Marvel Universe. The show takes place in the backdrop of the Fantastic Four's showdown with Galactus, but it follows a photographer, student, and journalist on their mission to investigate a sprawling, super-powered conspiracy. The show is written by Lauren Shippen, directed by Paul Bay, and sound designed by Misha Stanton. Um, If you don't already know those names, that is a literal dream team of fiction podcasts. I listened to this trailer, and as good as I expected it to sound with those folks behind it, it sounded even better than that. Oh, and it also stars Method Man. If you want to learn more about Marvels, go to marvelspodcast.com. And if you decide you want to give it a listen, just go to stitcherpremium.com and sign up with the code FUTURE. That'll get you a free month's trial of Stitcher Premium, which will let you listen to Marvels right now. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code FUTURE. So moving on for a minute, I want to I wanna discuss for a minute one of the the plot points in your story, I hope this is not too much of a spoiler, but you mentioned every culture in the world has their own idea, in our real world, has their own idea of what the afterlife is like. 
and in a lot of fantasy stories, eventually the characters sort of become introduced to the, you know, supposedly real afterlife. And it's sometimes jarring between what the world cultures assume for, within these stories, what the characters actually experience. And you turn that into a plot point of your book. And I was wondering sort of how you felt you sort of were at that boundary between the, the quote-unquote real world where you don't know what's happening in the afterlife versus in this case when you learn and you find out what it truly is like. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so I, I kind of like to say that this story is my love letter to agnosticism. Like, like this <laughs> idea that we'll find out what's there when we get there, right? Um, and mm-hmm. most likely, at least to me anyway, when we get there, probably everything we thought we knew about the afterlife is incorrect. But part part of the part of the mystery of life and death is not knowing, and I think that's really cool. You know, I was raised in a religious family, not super strict though. Um, but you know, we were Catholic, and I went to Sunday school, and um, you know, I was the the kid who had way too many questions, and uh, was was a problem, <laughs> and I and just you know, philosophy regarding religion and speculation about what's beyond i don't know that was always just really fascinating to me so yeah in this world i don't think it's actually that much of a spoiler like because literally if you read the first sentence of the prologue if you read the first page of the book it it's going to tell you what happened in this world um you know so you're living in a world where many hundreds of years ago it's a dystopia because somebody discovered what really happens to us when we die and it upended everything the world had come to believe about the afterlife and religion. And there was a big, you know, terrible world war. So, um, you know, and I, this was something I used to think about actually when I was young, I, you know, in Sunday school and just contemplating all these big, weird questions, I would be like, wait, what, what if someone found out had like, cold hard scientific proof of what was really out there what what would happen to us how would people react and i you know i i think that people would probably lose their minds a lot of people would be in crisis and i don't think a war is beyond the realm of possibility but then i also think eventually over a long period of time we might come to a place of enlightenment and understanding about it um which is, of course, something I want to explore in future installments of this story. Um, but it's it's a it's a big concept and a, a a pretty major thing to hang a dystopia on. And I also, you know, was a little nervous to put that into the story just because, you know, if, if if there are readers of faith who pick this up, you know, wasn't wasn't sure how people would react. But so far, it seems like. It seems like it's being really well received and that that is a relief to me. Yeah, and I think the way you you broach these topics, I think it's very like I don't think there's anything at all that's particularly uh striking or offensive towards modern world religions mm-hmm. or current world religions, right. I mean. But I guess part of that might be coming from 
my, you know, fantasy and D&D background, where it's sort of, in all these worlds, once you learn about the religion of that world, it's just sort of taken for granted that, oh, that's, that's the way this is now. Yeah, exactly. And in this story, it, it hangs a lantern on it, where it's like, yes, because we, we, we debunked actual religions, and that is like the reason dystopia happened. <laughs> um, so it just takes it a step further. But you're right, it's still, it's still in that same wheelhouse for sure. Yeah. And I was actually thinking about this. This might be a little bit of a, a depressing tangent. But <laughs> Go for it. I, I wouldn't have thought this maybe even five years ago, but now into like today's environment, I wonder if this were to happen today, would there be a large portion of the world who just doesn't believe like the evidence that's presented? Like someone could show up and say, hey, look, I found what truly happens after this life. And I feel like a big portion of the world would just be like, no. Oh, totally. That, that's wrong. Yeah. When I when I when I wrote this, I, I wasn't even thinking about that. But now, you know, applying it to where we're at in, in the world today, um, most certainly. And I think that if if and when I explore the past events in this story, if I, I'd like to explore them in some sort of a prequel format, that's very much what I want to get into, because that's to me is the reason that a war broke out in this world is because people refuse to believe it and you mm. just you know you want to scream at someone you want to shake them and be like the evidence is in front of you but you know that's 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 also the world we're living in today and various other subjects yeah that, that's something i wanted to ask you about but i'm glad you brought <laughs> it up what actually was the like in in the phantom forest it's sort of uh not hand waved over but the character kind of doesn't want to go into it. So he basically says, we discovered the afterlife and then there was a war. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask about what you think would be those sort of the, the in-between steps, how, how you get from A to B. So I think it's interesting that maybe it would just be people holding on to their beliefs for so strongly that, that that's what leads to the war. Yeah. And I think that that could be a really interesting book on its own. Yeah. If you ever get to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of... Perhaps not doing that as a book, but maybe uh, as a scripted podcast. That is kind of what I'm leaning towards right now. Um, so we'll see. Oh, I would I would subscribe I to that ideas. podcast entirely. <laughs> All right. Okay. You're my first <laughs> subscriber. Um, yeah, I, I have a, you know, I know some people who have had success with scripted podcasts and it feels like this is, um, you know, that particular idea of reporting on a crisis, reporting on a war, and the intricacies of what happened and why it's so complex and interviewing people and un unveiling certain truths, building out that world. I don't know. I feel like it loans itself really well to that format. And that's something I definitely want to do. I can I can almost hear that podcast in my mind already. I think it's an awesome idea. Yes. Woohoo! It's happening. I think. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, uh, we're big fans of scripted fiction podcasts here. We have a whole list of favorites. I've only just started, you know, scripted podcasts over the past year or so have finally kind of like crept into the public consciousness. And I've only just started getting into them. And I'm just like, wow, what an amazing way to tell a story. Like the, the radio play kind of came and went many, many long years ago. But I'm like, no, it's back. It's better than ever. This is amazing. Yeah, it's such a it's such a cool medium, and it, it really allows so much flexibility. You can really tell almost any kind of story. Mm -hmm. So, may I ask, 
how far are you on the planning process for making a Phantom Forest World podcast? Is this just a, a very early idea, or are you really starting to work on it? This is... It is a very early idea, but I now have started laying the groundwork and started, you know, futzing with what the scripts might look like and what is driving the story episode to episode. Um, you know, just it, for a while I was having to think about a format and, you know, how do you, cause I don't want it to just feel like we're reading a book with sound effects and characters. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really want there to be a reason for it to be in this format that it feels really organic. Um, I know I'm like many years behind on this one, but I uh, just started listening to Limetown and I love the format of that one, um, that it's it's investigative, but it's also mysterious and a little bit paranormal. And you you have all these questions right off the bat and they just tease it out. Um, so to me, I'm kind of thinking like, okay, for this, it's a question of can they can they find the one person who saw it for themselves who saw the afterlife for themselves mm-hmm. um and i say that i'm trying not to spoil what happens in the book so i'm you know uh i don't i don't want to say much more than that sure, sure. but yeah 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 well well best of luck with that and i really Thank you. i really hope it turns out I, i'd like to hear it it sounds super interesting yeah yeah i i'm gonna dedicate some time to that now that you know the book came out what like le- a little less than two months ago now so my whole life has kind of revolved around promoting this book oh, everywhere course. i go so now i'm like ha- i have all of this time to write now and it's simultaneously very freeing but also a little overwhelming because you know i just have this laundry list of all the things i want to go off and write and that's one of them Mm -hmm. how how has the book release been going by the way it's been really awesome i mean so i just came back from new york like two weeks ago where i did an event at the strand which is like my favorite bookstore ever as i said i went to nyu and i lived in new york for many years after that and you know that was just such a special place for me so to be invited to do an event there was truly truly like a once in a lifetime bucket list item day that's so cool um so that was awesome and then you know for that one like my parents got to go and it was really really special um and then you know the 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 coolest thing about releasing a book in this day and age is social media and bookstagram and that whole community Mm -hmm. um so you know i and, and it's it's a really cool way to interact with readers that you know, 10 years ago, authors didn't really have this platform. But for me, one of the most exciting and fun things about putting out a book is readers from all over the world can reach out to you on social media and share a cool picture of your book in a really like pretty bookstagram arrangement in a tree or something and and, and reach out to you and tell you how much they liked it. And that's really cool to me. It just you, you just feel like you are instantly connected to your audience and that's been the most special thing for me. Yeah, that's so cool. And have you have you received any fan art yet? Oh my god, no, and I'm dying. So if anybody's listening, I want I, I'm I'm dying to see it. Our our podcast listeners, there are some incredible fan artists who and when they send fan artists of our show, it really blows my mind. So um 
This is an official call, I guess. If anyone reads the, the call fandom to part, fan is, art. please please I, send me some fan art. I'm really I really love like retweeting and reposting stuff too. If that helps, I, I if you know, it will it will have eyeballs. I, I will I will try try my best to get our our fans <laughs> in on that. I wanted to ask Amazing. you for a minute about that that interview at the Strand. I saw on Twitter, uh, Colleen, who was uh, one of the creators of the Lesser Gods podcast, was uh, interviewing you at the Strand. Yeah. Um, fun story. Colleen is a friend of mine because oh, cool. uh, we uh, we are in a writers group together out here in LA. Um, she is also a screenwriter and a TV writer. And we were uh, connected through mutual friends who wanted to start a really awesome writers group. And now we're all, you know, now we're all good friends. And yeah, I kind of, when I was looking for somebody to co-host and moderate the thing at the Strand, I was like, you know, Colleen and I had a really interesting, similar trajectory in that she had a story she really wanted to tell and she had this badass DIY attitude about it where she recorded the first season of Lesser Gods like in her bedroom with her friends. And similarly, the way I put out Phantom Porous through Inkshares and, you know, kind of skirted around the traditional publishing gatekeepers. And in the end, you know, both of us found an audience and, you know, really made really made it work. Um, and created our own IP, which, you know, creating your own intellectual property as a screenwriter is, is so valuable and hard to do. Um, and she, and she completely crushed it. So I was like, this is, this could be a really fun conversation. And she's hilarious also, and just a delightful human being to spend time with. So I was like, well, this has to happen. Um, so we had a great time and that video of our interview is on the Strand's website on their YouTube, so you can watch it. That's awesome. Can you just search the Strand Phantom Forest? Yeah, yeah. They have a YouTube page. Okay, I'll, I'll try to put the link into the, the notes for this this episode as well. Put the YouTube That up. would be a great idea. I've, yes. I've never met Colleen myself, but I really enjoy Lesser Gods, and I think we've emailed back and forth once or twice, and it's oh, cool. such a cool, like, it's a cool podcast. I really like the premise of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, for those yeah, who don't she's... know, it's like a, a sort of dystopian end of the world scenario where there's just a few uh, selected people who are kind of the hope for the future and they get sort of named after some of the lesser Greek gods. And it's it's a lot of those same things, like sort of reflecting on some of the, the stories or characters you may recognize in a totally different, uh, a different take in a different setting. Yeah, it's very cool. She's she's just such an amazing creative world builder. I feel, I feel very lucky to know her, and even more lucky that she was able to come to the bookstore and hang out and talk. That's that's very cool. I'll be I'll be sure to check out that YouTube, and I'll put the link here. Awesome. And in in the meantime, uh, are you you mentioned you have another uh, book you're working on a standalone project, or is that the the main focus? Are you working on other books in the Phantom Forest world? What's what's coming up for you? Yeah. So in terms of other Phantom Forest books, while I do not currently have a three book deal, I plan to write three books because I'm a crazy person. Um, <laughs> and and though I, I definitely have a very definitive, clear 
end of this story that I know I'm building toward, you know, so I am just going to continue writing. And the best way to get those sequels sooner is to keep buying the book, tell a friend or 12 and, you know, spread the love. And that's how that will happen. But in the meantime, yeah, I'm also simultaneously, like I said, writing this YA horror standalone that I'm really psyched about. And that's, you know, sort of a a coming of age mother daughter story about monsters. And that's all I'm going to say for now in case it changes. Nice. That sounds very cool. And I, I appreciate the the trilogy thing. It's it's nice to know that the story has a has a big full arc. That's cool. Oh, yeah. I wonder, mm-hmm. I have a, a personal theory of trilogies, and I wonder if you have a similar trilogy, a theory, I guess, where in any trilogy, the first story always needs to stand alone. So you can have an ending that it seems satisfying if that's where you end there. And then the second book in the trilogy usually in, is the opposite, where it ends with a huge cliffhanger, because then that's setting up for the, the third book to really wrap everything up and close it all together. Is that something you have in mind, or is that just me? Oh, no, that is 100% how it goes and what I have in mind. I often think about, like, okay, because I come from film and screenwriting, you know, the three-act structure of a story is king. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think about, like, Act one, we've set something up, we've established a character. Okay, that's that's book one. And yes, you're right, like in theory, that should just stand on its own two feet, but tease towards something else. And then act two of a, of a movie or like book two of a trilogy is like all of this crazy stuff happens and maybe someone you care about dies and there's a low point you're building toward. And a lot of times the end of your second book or your second movie is the low point of the whole thing and you're like oh my god what do they do now and then of course you have you know your 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 book three and your resolution and you know that's that to me three is a magical number i love the number three because it just works Mm -hmm. in storytelling so there you have it it's a good storytelling number and a good joke number too oh yes oh yeah three three is magic yeah so in that case, if the best way we can help you to get to those third books is to buy the current one, where where can the listeners do that? Where can we find The Phantom Forest? You can find it where wherever books can be found. Um, there is, of course, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, brick and mortar bookstores have it too. Um, some of them don't have it yet. So if your local bookstore doesn't have it on the shelves, you can order it through there. There's a great website I really like called In- IndieBound that uh, you know, works with local booksellers in your area. So definitely use them. And um, libraries also are starting to carry it. So if you're libraries, I love the library. Um, So if your library doesn't have it yet, you can request it from them. They're very easy to order. And it's on Audible. There's an audio book that Audible produced and it's lovely. The actors are phenomenal and I really love it. Very cool. And um, do you want to shout out your social media or anything so our listeners can find you? Yeah, for sure. So uh, on Instagram, it's at Liz Karen, L-I-Z-K-E-R-I-N, just all one word. And then on Twitter, it's a little different. It's at Liz underscore Karen. Awesome. Do you have any any last thoughts? Anything else you want to add? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, let's see. What is your... 
What what fantasy franchise are you most looking forward to seeing wrap up or like what are you most hooked into? Were you like are you like a Star Wars guy or a Marvel guy? Like in terms of trilogies, in terms of series wrapping up, like what are you the most pumped for? Oh, that's a that's a great question. So my my absolute favorite series and many people are also eagerly awaiting the third book of this is Patrick Rothfuss's series, The Name of the Wind oh, sure. series. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, have, cool. you, have you read those books? I haven't yet. I'm so bad. Um, I know. Don't tell anyone. They're, they're, they're wonderful. They're like, I, I like describing his prose as three quarters of the way to poetry. Amazing. It's, okay. It's incredible to read. And it's also such a great story. And I guess tying back into what you were saying about the, the access that now fans have to the, to the writers and creators. He's, Pat Rolfus has unfortunately experienced some of the negative side of that, where he gets yeah. a little bit of harassment over Twitter for not having finished his story yet. So I entirely don't mean this to be piling on. I hope he takes as long as he needs and, you know, takes care of himself and eventually writes an awesome story. So that's, that's the story that I'm most looking forward to the ending, but yeah. I'm not really holding my breath for that. Other well, than I mean, that, it's it's important to let to let writers finish the story that they intend to tell, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm with I'm with him with on that front a hundred percent. And I don't, you know, and and for me, I, I don't know how long it will take me to close out, you know, the Phantom Forest story. It's a similar it's a similar feeling. Um, you know, I, I can only hope that people who are psyched about it now continue to be psyched about it in the future because you know a writer's got to write yeah and of course if you if your podcast takes off that you know will be a whole separate track in addition to the the novel trilogy so that'll take totally. up some time too i'm sure yeah yeah but i gotta make time and i'm going to make time because i'm very excited excellent how about you what what trilogy are you most looking forward to other than your own i guess I have I have a very I have morbid curiosity about how we're going to how we're going to wrap up the Star Wars mm. latest trilogy how that's going to end up in uh in December we're going to get some answers because I was I was on the train of not really feeling the last one which I you know had a lot of fights with friends about <laughs> um so I'll be honest, I, got, I haven't even seen it Okay, well, um, that's good because that means we can't fight. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll get people yelling at me for having not seen it yet, but... <gasps> that's okay. People are going to yell at me for not having read uh, Name of the Wind, so we'll call it even. Fair trade. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that I, once once the final or the next Star Wars movie comes out, I'll go back and watch them again, mm -hmm. the, the newest trilogy, and maybe I'll go back and watch the... You know, do a big movie marathon, watch all nine movies or eight oh or twelve God. movies, depending on how is you it, cut it. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, nine. Nine is technically the right number, but... Uh. <laughs> well, there was a thing. Have you ever heard of, uh, I think it was called the machete viewing of no. the Star Wars world? This was something my, my college roommate was super into Star Wars. And this is something he told me about. This was... Uh, before the newest trilogies were released, or the newest trilogy was released, I should say. So they, they said the way you were supposed to watch was in the sequence of episode four, five, two, three, six. Huh. So you see really? like okay. Luke's story where he sort of, you know, is going through the world and then you get to the point where you wonder 
how Vader became like that. So you go back and see how Vader became like that. And then you wrap it up and see how it all ends. And they oh my god. It, they called it the machete because you chop out episode one because no one wants to watch it. Because who wants that? Yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. I'm going to absolutely need to check that out. Maybe that'll be my primer before the before the last one comes out. Sounds like a great plan. But yeah, this was this was an awesome talk. Liz, thank you so much for your time. It's the Phantom Forest, it's a great book. I recommend people go go seek it out. Thanks so much. Had a great time chatting with you. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying the Once in Future Nerd, you might enjoy this show from our friends. Hi, I'm Kyle Willoughby. And I'm Clara White. And we host the podcast, Dragons, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, A Nerd Manual. Or DSRA for short. We're a nerd history podcast that aims to explore the roots of our favorite stories. Why is Black Panther Afrofuturism? What other famous movie directors wanted to make Jurassic Park? Every other week, we take an older and newer piece of nerd culture and seek to better understand their relationship by talking about what influenced them and the production behind them. 